0: Peace be with you. If you guys would, I know some of you already sat, but please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 5, starting verse 38, we'll read through verse 48. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me or follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the Word of the Lord. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you humbled by your grace and your mercy, humbled by the reality that we were once enemies and have now been reconciled by the blood of Jesus. God, as we learn from your word today, may we have humble and receptive hearts. Speak to us this morning, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In his work, um, The Powers That Be, author Walter Wink, he talks about what he calls the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence. Here's what he writes. He says it enshrines the belief that violence saves, that war brings peace, that might makes right. It is one of the oldest continuously repeated stories in the world. So this myth of of redemptive violence that Walter Wink talks about throughout his book, it it grows out of the the fundamental belief that violence must be used to overcome violence. That that is the only way. And this myth, it's something that we're taught, taught from when we're we lads and lasses, okay? Like, think about the TV shows or the books or the movies that we watch. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, X-Men, Superman, uh, Batman, even the sillier versions of it. Tom and Jerry or um, uh, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, right? It's this perpetuation of this narrative that the bad guy rises up with violence and he wins. So the good, guy, the good guys must rise up with violence as well to win and conquer that. If you've, seen, if you've seen Avengers, Endgame, no spoilers, don't worry. But it's the same thing. It's like three hours of this narrative, right? Bad guy, bad guy wins and rises up. Good guys rise up with violence and who knows what happens. You have to see it. If you want to know, I'll tell you after. This is the narrative that we're raised on. And the reality, though, is it's not just something that started with Hollywood, right? This has been a a perpetual narrative that has been shared for generations. It's why nation has risen up against nation or oppressed group has risen up against um, ruthless rulers, only to then become ruthless rulers themselves after they use violence to get to the top. It's a narrative. Of the cycle of domination is what Walter Wink says. And it can only be pro- broken with a different way, a third way. And I believe in this text, Jesus offers us a new vision for love, a new way of being in the world. And this is a vision that is arguably the, the characteristic that is most specific to the Christian faith, that is most unique to the Christian faith. And in this passage, what we're going to see is Jesus sets out this, this, uh, this new vision for love. We're going to see two calls, a call to, to passive non-retaliation and then a call to active love. So a call to passive non-retaliation and a call to active love. And now I, I don't want to lose some of you before I even get started. OK, so hear me. I want to clarify. I don't think that this this text is arguing against just war. I don't think that this text calls us not to fight for justice, whether that be having a policing system or a military or even fighting for, for righteous causes. I don't think that's what this text is doing. Largely, I believe that this text is, is a call to love in the face of individual dishonor. But we'll get to that a little bit more in a second. Okay, so Jesus, he starts with this new vision of love and he, he gives us the first point or the first call. It's passive non-retaliation. Okay, so he's sticking to his formula. If you look at verse 38 with me, um, he's sticking to the formula. He's given us examples up above as we've been looking through the sermon series. So he's, he affirms a teaching from the, New, or from the Old Testament that the audience will know and is familiar with. He says, you have heard the law, the Old Testament law, that says the punishment, punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So this is the basic principle of retribution, Right. This is where we get the term, the punishment must match the crime. If somebody knocks out your tooth, then the just punishment is to not necessarily knock out their tooth, but at least equal the compensation of what a tooth would cost. How you figure that out? That's what courts are for, I guess. But if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament law, okay, there was this, the moral code, the Ten Commandments, and then there was also this, this civic code that, that governed how they related to each other um, as a people group. And this comes from that portion, which it talks about how the people of God should govern and operate. If we look at Exodus 21, uh, 23b through 25, it says the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. The punishment must match the crime. But what's important for us to see in this text is that this command given to the Israelites was for the court system. It was for the judges to use this in cases. And the purpose was to lay the foundation of justice, specifying the punishment which a wrongdoer deserved, but then also to limit the compensation of his victim to an exact equivalent and no more. So it, thus, it had a double effect of defining justice and then also restraining revenge. That was the point of the law, to define justice and to restrain revenge. It prohibited, it prohibited taking the law into one's own hands by the act of vengeance. Okay, it was trying to avoid these, these family feuds, like this Hatfield and McCoy thing for generations. It was trying to avoid that. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, evidently they, they just extended this principle. They they disregarded this this uh, the reality that it was for the court system, and then they took it out of it and brought it into their own personal um personal dealings. Right? They started with, with the Clint Eastwood Dirty Harry uh, mentality, or uh, Liam Neeson and Taken. Right? Like the system's not doing anything, so I am going to take care of this. They took it out of the court system, out of the judicial system, and then it became this um, this law of personal revenge that they were using. But Jesus corrects this notion, right? He says, I say, do not resist an evil person. What? So if someone comes at me, I'm just supposed to I'm supposed to like let them beat the mess out of me. No, no. Okay, Jesus unpacks it a little bit. He gives us a little bit further understanding. And that's why he gives us all these illustrations. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, now Jesus is oddly specific here. Okay, If Jesus is oddly specific, our ears need to perk up a little bit. There's only so many words that fit into our Bible. So if something is in there that's like, oh, that's really specific, it means we should probably pay attention to it. Okay, Why did he say right cheek? What does that have to do with anything? Well, think with me for a second. Okay, imagine... Some of you may enjoy this. Imagine you are the slapper and I'm the slappy, okay? You're gonna slap the heck out of me. If you were gonna hit my right cheek, there's two ways to do it. Sorry, yes. My right cheek, there we go. I'm trying to do it from your perspective. I'm making it worse than it is. This is my right cheek. So. Uh, okay, right cheek, here we go. If you were gonna slap my right cheek, you could go open handed with your left hand, right? Like that, okay? Or what's the other option? How else could you slap me? Backhand! Oh, snap! You're gonna backhand me now. That's important, okay? So the left hand, sorry, lefties, but the left hand back in Jesus' day was only used to do unclean things, okay? So imagine you're like. You're trying to wash the dishes and and eat a donut, right? You wash the dishes with your left hand and eat a donut with the right hand or something like that. left hand was only used for unclean things. So you're not going to slap somebody with your left hand. So you're going to backhand them. This is talking about humiliation, right? This is the equivalent, if you're going to backhand somebody, this is the equivalent in American culture of someone spitting on you. It's extremely degrading. Backhanding someone, it was the 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 utmost sign of disrespect and shame. So what Jesus seems to be saying here in this in his examples, and we'll look at more in a second, that as Christians, if somebody is bringing shame and dishonor upon you as an individual. Then we shouldn't resist it. Now, again, I, I don't believe that this is referring to somebody like physically harming you or assaulting you. Even though slaps don't feel great physically, it's, it's more our honor or our, our, um, our, 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 um, our pride that's bruised, right? Same as if somebody spat on you. It's humiliating. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's why he's calling us to passive non-retaliation. And it, Not only is he saying, don't retaliate. He's actually saying, go a little bit further in the humiliation. Right? Look at the examples he gives. He says, oh, oh, someone backhands you one time. Give him the other cheek so they can slap you again. Oh, you're you're being sued in court for your undershirt? Well, give him your overcoat, too. Even though that's the only thing that keeps you warm. He says, oh, a Roman soldier comes to you and says, hey, will you carry my gear a mile? Which was a common practice. It was a way that they humiliated the Jewish people. Showing showing the Jewish helplessness that they had against this um, tyrannical... Rule, he says, hey, if that guy makes you carry it one mile, when you get to the end, say, hey, I'll take it another for you. Why do we do this? Why is Jesus calling to this? He says our Christian duty, it's not not to seek revenge. But it's even to go further and allow the evil person to double the injury, to double the humiliation which is upon us. And then Jesus, he gives us one more example at the end, arguably the most impractical illustration. Okay, we read this like, what the heck? Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. What? Those guys at Taylor Boulevard exit? Like, we got to give to them every time they hold the sign in front of my face? Again, we got to understand the context. That's not what he's saying. We don't want to explain Jesus' words away or try to evade them, but they should make us think, Right? But we can't take these four little illustrations that he gives as wooden rules. Okay? The whole point of this entire text that we've been journeying through for like the last six weeks is that Jesus is calling us to deeper heart righteousness, not more external rules. Okay? The religious leaders were calling for all these things to be followed, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want you to go deeper and not wider. The principle of all these... That Jesus is calling us to in in passive, non-retaliation, the principle is love. It's the selfless love of a person who, when injured, refuses to satisfy themselves in their desire, their deep desire that comes up for vengeance. The Christian should never, certainly in an act of humiliation, return evil for evil because they've been freed from this personal animosity. From this hatred that can stir within us, instead as Christians we should seek to return good for evil. we should be willing to give to the uttermost whether it's our body our clothing, our service, our money even insofar as these gifts um, are, are required by love. So the idea that Jesus is articulating is that the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God self-interest does not rule. you guys hear that in the kingdom of God self-interest is not our ruler. And even our legal rights or legitimate expectations, we may have to give way to those things for the interest of others. Now again, Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice. Rather, he was forbidding us to taking the law in our own hands. He wasn't telling us not to stand up for justice or not to defend others, but when we personally are dishonored or shamed or humiliated, Taken advantage of, it's not our job to become the arbiter of justice. Because when we do, all we're doing is we're paying evil for evil. We're stuck in this cycle of violence when we do this. And Paul affirms this same statement in the book of Romans. In Romans 17, he says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. And Paul lived this out. If you look at this, there's this little throwaway verse in 2 Timothy 4.14. I love this. Uh, I was reading through the the pastoral epistles a couple years ago. And he says this. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. But the Lord will judge him for what he's done. It's like, Ah, Lord's got it (laughs) Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm But my God is the God of justice He's got it, I'm good Paul knows what it means to live out this new vision For love that Jesus has put forth One of passive non-retaliation And this call to non-retaliation Odds are it's going to look a little different for us, right? But it still exists. We aren't, we aren't often dishonored or put to shame in the same way that Jesus is illustrating here. But we are put to shame in other ways. So I want to ask, what does this look like for you? How do you react when you are dishonored or shamed? If your spouse criticizes you and says some really hurtful things, do you just snap back at them, cutting them down just as bad or maybe worse? I heard the whole eye for an eye thing, but I'm going to do both eyes, take you down. Is that your response? Or if your, children, your grandchildren are just, they're ruthless to you with their words and your actions, do you scheme on how you're going to teach them a lesson? If your boss, he makes you do the most demeaning task possible at work. Do you sit there the whole time just strategizing? Oh man, I'm going to shame them way worse than they did me. Look, King Jesus, he is calling us as disciples to a different way of life, a life that's not driven by this this cycle of violence, this cycle of vengeance, but rather one that abandons our own self-interest, our own burning desire to be the arbiters of justice and simply to lay down our lives and obey the call that Jesus says to us to pick up our crosses. It's an invitation to participate in the sufferings of Christ, and we have such a hard time understanding that. 1 Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The call to non-retaliation is is the call to participate in the sufferings of Christ and furthermore to participate in the glory of Christ. So that's the first step towards this new vision of love, passive non-retaliation. But then he calls us to activity, to do something. He calls us to active love. Again, Jesus uses the same formula. He's used time and time again. Okay? He tells them, hey, you know this to be true from the law. In verse 43, he says, you have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This comes from uh, Leviticus 19.18, where it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But again, the religious leaders of this day, they're, they're great at finding loopholes, Right. So they did this in two ways. First, they lopped off the love your neighbor as yourself part, right? Because Jesus says, love your neighbor. So obviously these guys are talking about, well, we only have to love our neighbor. So they lopped off the yourself part, making it a little bit easier to follow. And then they added to it. They kind of have these, these, uh, these judo mind tricks they play. They say, well, my neighbor is only one of my, my people, one of my kinsmen, a fellow Jew. They belong to my race and my religion. The law, the law doesn't say anything about strangers or enemies. So since the command is to love only my neighbor, then it must be taken as permission or maybe even an injunction to hate my enemy. Right? If I'm called to love my neighbor, it's pretty specific. So then I must, by, by way, if it's only talking about my Jewish kinsmen, then I can hate my enemies. That's okay. But God, God's definition of love is broadly inclusive when he talks about our neighbor, right? We read the story of the Good Samaritan. But then here he just says, I I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute, persecute you. This truly is. It's the most paradoxical part of our faith. No other religion makes you do this. Jesus is the only one that says, hey, you need to love those who abuse you, who shame you, who mock you, who seek to harm you. Or maybe even seek to kill you. Again, Paul talks about this in Romans 12. This call to actively love your enemies. Right? So we saw that first part. He says, never pay back evil with more evil. And then skipping down to verse 20. It says, uh, or he says never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger for God. For the scriptures say, I'll take revenge. Skipping down. He says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. The world, they simply don't know what to do when we respond in love. When somebody is violent towards you or or they disparage you with their words, when you respond in kindness, it it really is confounding because most humans don't react that way. It switches the tables on them, right? They want you to react by snapping back at them. Because then you're playing their game. That's what the world wants. But Jesus, he he has something totally different for us. But this is so tough to do, right? To actually love your enemies, to actually pray for them. The early church father, uh, Chrysostom, he says that to pray for your enemies was the highest summit of self-control. The highest summit of (laughs) self-control. Another pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay, he, uh, he was a pastor during the rule of the Nazi regime. He was a vocal, vocal resistance to the Nazi party, eventually put in a concentration camp. He was tried for a plot to assassinate Hitler and then executed. And he, he, he really lived out this whole loving your enemies thing, even as a resistor. This is what he writes. He says, this is the supreme command, talking about Matthew 5. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. Now, I I just, I don't think really in the American church we we get this. I think we have a challenging time understanding it, truly, to the depth that people around the world do. Undoubtedly, um, you all heard of, of the... Horrific bombings that happened in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. These were targeted attacks on churches in Sri Lanka by terrorist groups, killing 250. One of the pastors was interviewed. Um, his church lost 28 members when a suicide bomber blew himself up outside their sanctuary on Easter Sunday. And here's what uh, Pastor Sean said in this interview in response He said, We are hurt. We are angry also, but still, as this senior pastor of Zion Church Batacola, the whole congregation and every family affected, we say to the suicide bomber and also to the group that sent the suicide bomber that we love you and we forgive you. No matter what you've done to us, we love you because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this such a beautiful picture of this command from Jesus lived out? That last line, honestly, it cuts me to to the core. He says, we love you. The suicide bomber that blew up members, brothers and sisters in his own congregation. He says, we love you because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in verse 45. He says, in that way, when you actively love your enemies when you pray for those who persecute you in that way you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike jesus is saying when you, when you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you you are acting like your heavenly father does like father like son God's God's love, he loves indiscriminately. He gives common grace to all those he created, whether they're his enemies or not. And that's a special kind of love that's different than the world. He continues, he says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. He says, oh, you love those who love you? Who cares? So do tax collectors. He says, oh, you have meals with those who are kind to you? Here's a ribbon. Even pagans do that. I don't care. Right? It's easy to go get coffee with someone who's nice to you. (laughs) It's easy to have over the people to your house that encourage you all the time. Non-Christians do that. Good job. But Jesus, he is calling us again. He's calling us to deeper and deeper righteousness, to deeper and deeper love. That's what he modeled for us. What What if you began to draw near to those that you would classify as your enemies? What if you invited that snarky coworker over to your house for dinner? The one who's rude to you, who gossips about you at work all the time? What if you had them over for dinner? That'd be pretty confounding, right? It'd be like, what what agenda do you have? What are you trying to get from me? What if you prayed for your neighbor that clearly disrespects you for the color of your skin? What if you prayed for that person? What if you love that sibling of yours that has poked fun at your faith for your entire life? What if you showed them a different kind of love? This way of loving it, it's different than the world has ever known before. And that's why Jesus, in verse 48, he wraps this up with what seems like an an entirely impossible command for us to follow. Right? He says, but you are to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, this call to perfection, it confuses us a lot. Even great theologians can get confused by this. But it's not the call to perfection that we think of. Rather, It's a call to wholeness. It's not moral perfection in this life, right? Jesus wouldn't tell us to uh, pray um, for Him to forgive us of our trespasses later, right? If He calls us to be perfect in this life, why would He ask us to pray for forgiveness of our trespasses every time, right? He knows we can't be perfect. But this is a call to wholeness, to wholeheartedness. And wholeness, this perfection that Jesus is calling us to, this greater righteousness can only happen through this new vision of love. I think it's fair to say that in American history, no person embodied this more, this this idea of passive non-retaliation and active love greater than Martin Luther King Jr. And what I love about this is, is his posture shows the kingdom impact that can be had when we live this command out. But he also shows us the nuance of this issue, right? Martin Luther King didn't just roll over. He was a resister. He fought for justice. He was defending the rights of others, but he did so through passive non-retaliation and active love. And one of King's most moving sermons, I think, is on this text. It's called Loving Your Enemies. And in it, he's wrestling with the questions, why and how are Christians to love? And here's what he says. He says, hate multiplies hate. Right, if you respond with evil for evil. Hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. It's the cycle that no one can get out of. Violence for violence. And it is just as injurious to the hater as it is the hated. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend because, because it has both creative and redemptive power. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. You see, this, that's what Jesus did for us, right? The only way that we could be made friends when we were enemies is because of Christ's love for us. And he's not calling us to anything that he didn't do himself. If you look back through this text, he did every piece of this throughout his life. Verse 39, he didn't resist the evil persons that screamed for his crucifixion. When he was slapped, he didn't retaliate to regain his honor. In the unjust court of law, when his clothes were ripped from his body, he gave up everything. He was naked. When a soldier demanded that Jesus carry his cross, he did so. According to John. He freely gives to those who ask, even as he was on a cross, right? One of the thieves asked to be in paradise with him. Jesus gladly invited him in. He loved his enemies. He prayed for those who were persecuting him. And when he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He loved the tax collectors. He loved the Gentiles. And above all, this call to be perfect, he lived it. He lived a perfect whole life. In perfect obedience to his Father in heaven. No greater love was there than this perfect love that Jesus modeled for us. For us, the ones who were enemies and who are now friends of God. That's what we celebrate each week in a meal called communion. We celebrate that we once were enemies of God, but have now become friends through his blood. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On that same night, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you. It seals the new covenant for you. This meal reminds us that we were enemies of God. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have now been brought near. Here at Sojourn, our tradition is to break off a piece of bread and dip it into the juice. If you're not a Christian, um, we ask that you not partake in this meal. Not because we want to exclude you, but because we want you to continue or to consider taking Christ instead. We don't want you to participate in this meal if you're not about the reality. Jesus is not your Lord. So if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, please come talk to me or volunteer afterwards. We can prepare you to take communion next week. There will be a slide up behind me um, to tell you which station to go to and how to proceed forward. There will be stations here at the front. There will be a gluten-free station over to my left and your right. If you're unable to come forward, we'll bring elements to you. So be sure to, to wave us down as we bring those elements down. Before we take this meal together, let me pray. Heavenly Father. Your love is greater than any love that this world has ever known. John tells us that there isn't a greater love than when somebody lays down his life for his friend. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. But more than him laying down his life for friends, he laid down his life for enemies, for those who were apart from God, for those who were lost. We thank you, Jesus, for this sacrifice. For your bringing us into your kingdom. For you calling us friends and brothers and sisters. God, may we allow by the power of your spirit this love to transform the way we love others. May you give us the power. We need your power, God, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Spirit, will you soften our hearts and our minds even today? Pray all this in our friend Jesus' name. Amen.